Today's reading is Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 25, and it takes place um, soon after Moses comes down from the mountain and presents the Ten Commandments. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord your God charged me to teach you, to observe in the land that you are about to cross into and occupy, so that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life and keep all his decrees and his commandments that I am commanding you so that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe them diligently so that it may go well with you and so that you may multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land that he swore to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, a land with fine, large cities that you did not build, houses filled with all sorts of goods that you did not fill, hewn cisterns that you did not hew, vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you have eaten your fill, take care that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name alone you shall swear. Do not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who are all around you, because the Lord your God who is present with you, is a jealous God. The anger of the Lord your God would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you from the face of the earth. Do not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massah. You must diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, and his decrees, and his statutes that he has commanded you. Do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, so that it may go well with you, and so that you may go in and occupy the good land that the, Lord that the Lord swore to your ancestors to give you, thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord had, has promised. When your children ask you in time to come, what is the meaning of the decrees and the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your children, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord displayed before our eyes great and awesome signs and wonders against Egypt, against Pharaoh and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land that he promised on oath to our ancestors. Then the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our, lasting, for our lasting good, so as to keep us alive, as is now the case, 
If we diligently observe this entire commandment before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, we will be in the right. The word of the Lord. guy Wynton Marsalis, maybe you heard of him, he said, jazz is not just, well, man, this is what I feel like playing. It's a very structured thing that comes down from a tradition. It requires a lot of thought and study. All the best jazz musicians know that creativity is found at the intersection of the given and the unpredictable. Well, all the jazz musicians and Moses, apparently. While in college, I took this course on jazz improvisation. I remember the awful feeling in my stomach the first day we all had a go at it. Not to sound pompous, but I didn't suck. I mean, I had played for seven years. I had played some of the most challenging music ever written. I was an all-state musician. I was there on a performing arts scholarship. I was a music major. And yet, at that moment, none of that seemed to matter. I knew the given quite well, the scales, the literature, the history, the theory. But it was the unpredictability of the moment that had rendered my stomach into some kind of a mess of rubbish as the player before me wrapped up his solo. And so I took one more glance at the key the piece was written in. I took a deep breath, and I went. It, it wasn't good. It was terrible. As a matter of fact, when everybody had finished their turn, our professor looked down and then looked up. He looked down a second time and then back up to say, Remember, there are no wrong notes in jazz. Just poor choices. (laughs) Not quite as eloquent as Winton had put it, but I suppose they're both pointing to that same reality, just in different ways, that creativity is found at the intersection of the given and the unpredictable. The thing about jazz is that it's found a way to hold the two together, the given, the tradition, and the unpredictable, the endless choices and possibilities without making the two mutually exclusive. And that's because jazz is itself a tradition of improvisation. And like I know, for many of us, tradition is practically profanity for the status quo. But by its very definition, tradition is anything that is handed down, passed on. You know, like the very American tradition of being hostile, or at least indifferent to history, authority, or complexity, a tradition that so values the individual that it denies any serious claim or obligations to the other, to community. That's the given collective wisdom of the tradition in our own dominant culture. So I think it's funny that we discredit tradition using our own American tradition of suspicion and individualism. And I get that, but it just kind of seems naive. Plus, it's not really that creative. 
But back to jazz. Jazz is a contested word. Matter of fact, despite our best efforts, we're not even sure where that word came from. But Peter Townsend, who writes on jazz as an American cultural force, he says that to understand jazz, you have to understand two things. First, jazz is not a style, but is a family of musical styles. And while it's difficult to define in words, when listening to the music, there's fairly little doubt that what one is experiencing is, in fact, jazz. The other thing is that no matter whether it is New Orleans ragtime, Afro-Cuban, Latin, bebop, fusion, swing, whether it's a piano, a combo, a trio, a big band, or the Boston Pops, the role of improvisation is key. Improvisation, the art of composing and performing simultaneously, must be a part of it. Through improvisation, you see, jazz tells its heritage, its struggles, and its future. Improvisation and jazz is the epitome of both the medium and the message. The two become the same thing. Improvisation, it becomes the nuanced message of contextualization. And so jazz can generally be described as American. But then really, it's thoroughly local in its performance. Performance happens in a particular place, during a particular time, before a particular audience. Both composition and in performance, all musicians know that you have to be apprenticed to a tradition because it's the only way you'll ever innovate. This guy, Paul Berliner, he studied the jazz scenes of Chicago and New York for decades by hanging out with musicians in their clubs, in rehearsals, and in their kitchens. His study reveals a complex process of study or engagement with a tradition, participation in the jazz community, mastering a vocabulary, finding one's own voice, taking creative risks, committing to a routine, collaboration across ensembles, always a process of give and take, enduring conflict resolution, interacting with diverse audiences. Berliner calls jazz nothing short of a way of life. For those of us committed to following God in the way of Jesus, this narrative of of improvisation should already begin to sound familiar. Creativity is found at the intersection of the given and the unpredictable. But I guess that's the thing. What's given anymore? The setting of Deuteronomy 6 is itself quite dramatic, It immediately follows the recalling of the Ten Commandments as given at the edge of the Promised Land, the land flowing with milk and with honey. Moses is giving this five-chapter sermon, and I'm giving a sermon on a sermon. That's weird. But anyway, the primary concern at the edge is that all may be well in this new land, on this new day. Moses' first words after delivering the commandments in the very heart of Judaism comes to be called the Shema, or the Great Commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your youngsters. That's the House of Mercy translation. 
and talk about them when you are at home and when you're away, when you lie down, when you rise. Bind them on the, as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. Notice how that text begins with the imperative, with that claim, to com- the command to hear and then love. The pattern is striking. First listen, be attentive, make room for the other, and then in response, love. I know that kind of seems obvious. Well, it's obvious if you've ever loved anyone. But maybe, too, if you've ever tried to love somebody any other way. Not that I've ever done that. Maybe. Deuteronomy is unique, actually, in its word, in its use of this word love to describe the relationship between God and God's people. The Shema is actually the first time it is characterized that way. Which is weird, I always thought. I mean, really, it took them that long to call the story love? But even if they were slow learners, they make up for it in the concreteness. This is the kind of love that is out of their entire being, body, heart, their very soul. The Shema is not unrelated, of course, to that law that precedes it. I know, I know, who gives a flip about the law? Can't we just jump straight to the gospel, the grace, the mercy, the love? But that's the thing about the law. Israel's law, unlike ours, comes in the form of a narrative. It's wrapped up in a love story. They're given first in Exodus, and the whole thing is retold here in Deuteronomy to help us love one another better. You want to know how to love one another? Don't kill each other, don't steal, don't covet your neighbor's wife. You get the idea. I mean, I know they sound pretty elementary, but have you ever tried to improvise them? Like, what would you add or take away? Yeah, we can talk about that later. The whole idea is that if you want to love God, then love your neighbor. Listen, be attentive, make room for the other. Don't presume anything. Be present. Love them. Creativity is found at the intersection of the given and the unpredictable. Okay, so there's no wrong notes, only poor choices, but there are so many choices. We live in a culture that is intolerant of religious commitments that are specific, and by their specificity, exclusive, right? I mean, but, it is, but is it small-minded to reject some commitments? In favor to others? Is it really narrow-minded to discriminate among claims to our loyalty? Are all automobiles, real estate agents, economic theories, philosophies, theologies, and gods really equal to one another so that discriminating among them is unnecessary? We all live by a script, says Walter Brueggemann. It may be implicit or explicit, but at least in this country... We all live in the script of a technological, therapeutic, consumeristic militarism. Yeah, that's right. You got that? I'll do it again. Technological, therapeutic, consumeristic militarism. It is the script that promises to make us all happy, but I guess Will Smith figured it out. The pursuit of happiness using this script, this script of technological, therapeutic, consumeristic militarism is rubbish. The entire middle section of this Deuteronomy text has this anxiety about it. 
It has an anxiety about these kinds of self-made scripts, or even worse, amnesia. A sort of dangerous amnesia when you forget who you are, when you forget whose you are, and where you've come from. The concern here is that not far into maybe even relative prosperity, they forget all about God. They won't need God like when they cried out for God in Egypt. To help them remember who they are and whose they are, the story is retold. The story is not simply retold, though, like as a point of mere historical backdrop. The story is told so that they will come to see themselves as part of the ongoing story of God at work in the world. Creativity is found at the intersection of the given and the unpredictable. My friend Karen, she tells this story about a young boy who ventures up and into the attic, and there in the dimly lit corner, he finds a dusty, rusty old chest. For him, Grandpa's old chest is a treasure chest full of adventures, a time machine teleporting him back into a world he's never known Inside, he finds a long, slender piece of cloth. Assuming it's a belt, he ties it around his waist. And then decorated in all kinds of antique memorabilia, he goes downstairs to show his mom and his dad. And when he does, they're horrified. What has he done with Grandpa's tie? But you can't help get the picture of Grandpa looking down with that patient smile. At least it's out of the chest. And I guess that's what's remarkable about this text. It's not so much that they stopped at the edge of the promised land to recall how God rescued them from slavery and the love story that surrounds it, although I guess that's pretty remarkable. But what's remarkable to me is that the Shema provides this central identifying reality for Israel's very existence. Relationship with Yahweh, who is not only the God of their ancestors, but it is their God on this day. In other words, they improvise the story that is given to them for a new day. I mean, I know it seems like I'm just screwing around with pronouns here, but how much of our imaginations are stifled when we fail to see God alongside us at the edge of our future? Because here's the deal. The generations of old don't even get to enter the promised land. Moses and Aaron will not lead them in because a new kind of leadership is needed for a new day in this new situation. The retelling of the Ten Commandments and this narrative history that goes with them is a way of framing the future for Israel. When your youngsters ask you in time to come, what is the meaning of the decrees and the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord our God has commanded you Then you shall say to your youngsters, you were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord displayed before your great eyes and awesome signs and wonders against Egypt, against Pharaoh and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in to give us the land that he promised on oath to our ancestors. Then the Lord commanded us to observe all these statues to fear the Lord for our lasting good to keep us alive. Again, the very structure of it all just is so beautiful. It takes the present generation back 
to the past and then brings them afresh into the present, can they learn afresh what it means to love the Lord wholeheartedly? The youngsters seem to know what the statues and ordinances are. The question is, what does it mean for them today? They are questions of what is that? Why? Why do I? They are questions of significance, of meaning. They are questions for improvising. The story of Israel is retold in a way that creates the very basis for their current life together. The story is told so that a creative memory is fostered in the imaginations of the next generation. The next generation is learning to take the tradition and improvise because life isn't static. We grow older. We get married or not. We move to another place or we don't. We get new jobs or don't. We get new careers even. Babies are born. Grandparents and parents pass away. And that's just inside the community. I mean, never mind the environments around us, like hurricanes and earthquakes, immigration, oil spills, wars, famines, droughts, floods, and it just goes on, doesn't it? Look, not improvising with tradition is never really an option. We don't live in a vacuum And so our context, histories, each other, our very families, our cultures, and our worldviews, they matter. we got to learn how to hold this stuff with a helpful posture towards the future and with some kind of a hope, some kind of a hope beyond optimism. And in Deuteronomy, this next generation is tapping into that very complex process of improvisation. They're participating in the wilderness community, Mastering a vocabulary, we call that theology, finding their own voice in those questions of improvisation, taking creative risks like using trumpets to blow down fortresses, committing to a routine like daily reciting the Shema, collaborating across 12 tribes, enduring conflict resolution. Just start reading the prophets, you'll see how that goes. And interacting with diverse audiences. If you're not familiar, they're about to go to Palestine. And issues of land and peoplehood never go away from that place. What a thick and textured experience this must be to improvise with tradition. See, what's going on is tradition is actually, it's conditioning them into a certain kind of people, a peculiar people, more of a verb, less of a noun. This rhythm of prayer, community, and spiritual practices is traditioning them into a way of life. It is a way of life that holds together the given and the unpredictable together so that we can be people who know who we are and know whose we are so that we can stand at the edge of the promised land with a great hope for our youngsters so that we can be people who love tradition or, in other words, improvisation.